As Dan said, my name is Ronnie Spicer, a family and youth minister over in Schoolies Mountain. I actually just got that job um, two months ago or so. Um, before that, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky for about three and a half years, uh, going to Southern Seminary, which I believe Pastor Dan also, yeah, right? Pastor Dan also went there. So uh, it's a privilege to be here. Greetings to you from Emmanuel Bible Church. Um, I'm pleased to be here. My church is pleased for me to be here as well. And uh, I count it a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. So my parents both came to faith in Christ around when I was a teenager. And at that point, they brought us from the Roman Catholic Church to a Baptistic church. And I'm very thankful for that church. It was there that I heard the gospel and eventually where the Lord would choose to save me from his wrath and and from my sin. It was also there that I learned that a Christian is always to be on mission. And maybe you guys are familiar with that verbiage, that every Christian is a missionary Christian. Or every, uh, we're not just Christians, we're Great Commission Christians. Or we're not just a church, but we're a Great Commission church. So I began to think of my Christian life just like that, uh, where the greatest evidence, the most telling sign of my faith was whether or not I was preaching the gospel, whether or not I was evangelizing the lost. And it characterized my life. In high school, I was on mission. In ShopRite, I was on mission. In the football locker room, I was on mission. And when I was buying a Wawa sub, I was on mission. Everything I did, I was on mission. And I thought that was the Christian life. I thought Jesus was quite pleased that I was so faithful and so loyal to the Great Commission. And it became something that I would even judge other Christians with. Well, are they real Christians? Are they passionately sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? But you guys might be thinking, hey, that's, that's good thinking. We are supposed to be on mission. But I want you to pause right there. There's something slightly off with that thinking. And it's not that we're not supposed to obey the Great Commission. We are. The Lord is commanded. It's not optional. We are either obligated to, to mobilize people to share the gospel uh, to the nations, or we are to go ourselves. So my question, my question isn't, are we supposed to obey the Great Commission? But my question is, is evangelism supposed to be the determining sign of whether or not I'm a true Christian? I would argue it's not, for the simple reason that the New Testament never suggests that it is. In other words, when the Bible asks, how can you be assured that that you're a true Christian? How can you be assured that you truly have Christian faith, that you, you have eternal life? It never points to your success in evangelism. In fact, it doesn't point to a lot of things that Christians have upheld as the mark of Christian living. For instance, the Bible doesn't say, see how much you're risking for Jesus to tell whether or not you're a Christian. It doesn't say, look at how many church programs you're involved in. Guess what? It doesn't even say... Check how much you've read your Bible this week to see if you are a true Christian. When the Bible asks the question, how can you be assured you're a genuine Christian? How do you know that you truly know God? 
It's answer, well, by how you treat your church. When Paul or Peter or John want to assure you of true saving faith, they're not, they're not telling you first to look at your evangelism prowess or, or your courage or your volunteering or your Bible reading. Instead, they're telling you to look at how do you love this church? How well do you forgive a fellow sister when she gossips about you? How well do you care for the single mothers in your midst? Are you quick to argue for your preference with your pastor? Are you eager to maintain the unity around the gospel? I know it's pretty crazy for us to think that, that this, speaking to, thinking of these covenant members, is the, is the most telling sign of, of your Christian faith. But the New Testament's clear. If you claim to speak the language of angels, but you have not love, you're but an annoying symbol in somebody's ear. If you and I speak with eloquence, understand all theology, understand everything there is to know about church and Christianity, but we don't love those who are in the church, we don't love those who profess the Christian faith, we're nothing. If I give up all my possessions, if I give up my body to be burned, but I don't love my church, I'm nothing. I gain absolutely nothing. I think John sums it up in the most sharpest of words. If someone would say, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. So, brothers and sisters, if if you want to know, do you truly know God? If you've been saved by his grace, look at how you love this congregation. It helps you not one bit to erect some type of false model of Christianity just to have it burn on the last day. Since loving the brethren is is such an important thing to the apostles, it ought to be something that's important to us. And so this morning, I want to take a look at 1 John chapter 5 with you and see what, what does the word say about loving the brethren? Why? This is one question we'll try to answer. Why is it so interlocked with faith in Jesus? And then secondly, what does it look like? How, how do you distinguish it from the cheap version of, well, love is love? So if you haven't already, if you would, please open up your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll go through verse 1, and we'll answer that first question, why is faith so tightly knit to, uh, to our love for our brethren? And then we'll go through verses 2 through 5, and see, all right, well, what, what, is this, what is this love supposed to look like? How do we distinguish this love from man-made love? And my hope by the end of this is that those of you who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, that you would be assured of God's love for you as you love this congregation. And those of you who do not confess Jesus to be the Christ, He is not your Savior and Lord, I'm praying that you will come to know him. You'd be unified with him by faith. And then you would become a part of a local church just like this who loves the brethren. So let's read 1 John 5, 1-5 together. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So why is brotherly love connected so tightly to faith in Jesus? Well, if you were to look at verse 1, it's not immediately apparent. John makes two clear statements in in verse 1. But he doesn't necessarily show you how they're connected in that verse. Uh, His first statement is, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. His second statement is, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. We'll unpack that first statement, and then I think we'll be able to see the connection. There's a lot packed into that first statement. And a lot of it has to go back to what Dan has prayed for for the kids here, uh, for those who do not know the Lord, that you would be born again. So, in that first statement, John is saying that if you come to believe in, in Jesus, in all that God says that Jesus is for sinful humanity then that has happened through no, no other means than by God recreating you, spiritually recreating you. You were dead. As you followed your sins, as you love sin and love self, you were dead. Those who do not confess Jesus to be the Christ only have one life setting. Serve me, myself, and I. And that comes in all shapes and sizes. That looks like religiosity, and that looks like the hedonist. That looks like the prodigal son who went and squandered all of his father's wealth, who used all of that money to spoil it on his own pleasures, for his own temporal happiness. But then it also looks like the Pharisee, who, who sets up his own moral code so that he can advance his place with God. In both sets, the prodigal son and the Pharisee, the hedonist and the religious person, both are seeking God to serve them. They don't serve God. Actually, God serves the Pharisee's moral code. He doesn't serve God's law. And the hedonist, everything in this earth, though it's God's, is supposed to be used for his own pleasure. And we're stuck in that. We are stuck in that as human beings. We're sinful, and that's what we want to do. That's what we love to do. So, apart from being born of God, God using his sovereign hand to change our desires, to change our perception of ourselves, to change our our low, self-serving view of God, we would have never, we would have never believed in the gospel. The gospel that calls us to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of them. That's a lot, right? In just the first few words. So John's first statement, he's just making it clear that if someone has come to believe in Jesus, man, there's a lot of stuff that's going on underneath the surface. God has been doing a lot of work. A man hasn't just intellectually decided, yeah, Jesus is probably that Messiah that he promised a long time ago. No, the man who has believed Jesus to be the Christ is is the man who was miraculously born of God. He has been spiritually recreated. And a part of that recreation, and this is, this is huge to understand the next statement. A part of the recreation is God recreating your, your loves and your desires. 
And at the core of it is man's switch from love to self to love to God. God spiritually recreates a person to believe in Jesus, but then he also simultaneously transforms our will and our affections to love God above all things. And John says as much in earlier in chapter 4 when he says, well, we love because he first loved us. God's recreating love compels us to love him above all things. And then he comes in with the second statement. Well, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So God's recreating work through faith in Jesus necessarily it's going to compel us to love the Father who orchestrated the whole thing. So John's just assuming in the second statement what God had done in the believer in the first statement. If you have been born of God to believe in Jesus, you will love the Father. But then to his main point, I think of all these verses, if you love the Father, which you will if you have been born of God and believe in Jesus, you will also love those who have been likewise born of him. You guys might be saying, man, that's a, that's a long answer. That is a long answer. Slow it down, man. Well, it's not, it's not a simple answer. It is a long answer. But as Christians, we, we got to get comfortable with those long answers. Because, I mean, yeah, we could have gave a short answer, right? Why do we love the brethren? Well, we believe in Jesus. That's why we do it. And we go on. That's a good and right answer. But John wants us to be comforted by the answer. He, he wants, and so he wants to give us a long answer. He wants to assure us that when we are biblically loving the brethren, that it's not just our own do, doing. It's not just some uh, meaningless volunteerism at a club. No. When John gives his long answer, he wants to assure us that it is God who is at work in us. That's why he roots it in the birth of God, the rebirthing, the recreating of God. So be encouraged, saints of God, if you are dying to your song preferences for the sake of this body and joyfully fellowshipping anyway, because it is God who is at work within you. If you are bearing the financial burden of the widow, If you are easing the circumstances of some of the elderly in your covenant community, rejoice, for God is the one who has recreated you to do that very thing. If you've been seeing your brother neglect his family shepherding duties, and you don't just let him get by with it, but you say, brother, you have a responsibility to your wife and to your children to raise them up in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Praise God. God is at work in you, calling your brother to do what God has called him to do. You see, you don't don't get that sort of encouragement when you just say, hey, I love the brethren because I believe in Jesus. You get that encouragement when you realize that loving the brethren is actually born out of a love for God, and a love for God is born from faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus is born from God himself. When that happens, you begin to realize that, man, what's going on when I love the brethren is there's a work of God going on inside of me. The God of the universe is at work in little old me. God who holds the earth together by the power of his word is at work 
in me. God, whose voice is like the thunder, whose power is like that of lightning, is at work in me when I love this little old church. That's amazing. So those of you who believe in Jesus this morning, Jesus is the Christ to you. When you love the people here at First Baptist Church of Manawan, be encouraged. For in so doing that, God would have you remember that you are his. You are born of him. You are his child, and he is at work in you mightily. Now we're going to turn to our second question. But what does that love look like? We hinted at it already, but I want to get the answer from the passage. There are many who believe that, yeah, they're doing a swell job loving the brethren. I know what to do. But their love is self-defined. And honestly, a self-defined love gives you no assurance whatsoever. So let's look at verse 2 and 3 together. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. We love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. That flies right in the face of contemporary love. Love is love, we're told. There's no limitations to it, no restrictions. It's only standard. You do what your heart tells you to do. If your heart is leading you, Outside of your marriage of 25 years, don't try to stop it. Follow your heart. Are you attracted to the same sex? Don't let someone tell you that's not okay. Love is love. Whoever you decide to be with. Would you rather peruse the the market of women your whole life and settle down and commit to one? By all means, marriage is an outdated uh, means of restriction anyway. Don't let society constrain you. Friends, where does it stop? If we can define love however we want, Who are we to tell somebody that the way they want to be loved, the way they want to love, is wrong? We can't. Where love is self-defined, it becomes no better than a safe for our self-destructing, consumeristic desires. But notice in the verses we just read, John leaves no room whatsoever for our own definitions. Whatsoever. Love for the brethren isn't what we make it. Love for the brethren is very specific. It starts with a love for God. But get this, he, did, he doesn't even let us define what that is. He, he specifies it even more. Love for God is when we obey his commandments. Have you guys thought of love in that way? He's summoning, summing love up in terms of obedience to God's commandments, to God's law. And for some of you, that's just that's surprising. God's law, God's love, that those things don't mix. When I hear law, I hear restriction. I hear legalism. I hear oppression. They don't go together. And I thought that way for a while in my Christian life. Hey, we are under grace. All right, We are no longer under law. None of that stuff. And when I heard commandments from the pulpit... I thought that man did not know the gospel. Did he not know that when the gospel comes, restrictions go away? All right, I'm free in Jesus. However, John and other New Testament writers seem to think that God's commandments and God's love sweetly comply with one another. They're friends. They're not enemies. You guys remember Jesus' words in the gospels when he's asked, uh, what... 
uh, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment in the law? His response is twofold. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so a lot of people have gone to that, that text and they said, Ah, you see? See what Jesus is doing? The law is done away with. Here comes love. All right, we're on to grace. But they, they missed the question that was asked to Jesus. Jesus is asking, or the Pharisees were asking Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus then says, love God and love your neighbor. So love is not opposed to the law, but actually the summary of it. Jesus says, on these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. So love doesn't replace the law, but love is actually, in fact, the very requirement of the law. So when John, in our, in our passage, is seeking to assure us that, the, that our love for our church is genuine and pure, he's not saying, hey, just look within. Make sure you, you're feeling it. But he says, look without. Look at God's standard. Look at God's law. And so, brothers and sisters, that means that you and I, our feelings, our opinions, they're not the ultimate standard for what church love ought to look like. When you think that the best way to love members in this church is through this particular worship style or these specific programs or, the way, or this way of addressing politics, is your approach informed by God's law or primarily your preferences? Are the hills that you are willing to die on for worship, programming, politics, parenting, education, you name it, are they ultimately convictions built on passages that you can point to in Scripture, or are they just really well-informed opinions? Is your choice to sing or not sing certain songs based on God's law or your feelings? Is your distance from a brother or sister in this community, in this congregation, due to his or her failure of obeying God's law or your law? What's informing your exhortations with your fellow brother and sister when you want to encourage them in the Lord? Your opinion or God's commands? Brothers and sisters, we love this church and we love God when we choose not to love according to our feelings or our opinions, but when we choose to love according to God's standard. And if unity of the Spirit will be maintained at this church, it will not be because certain people won over other people with their opinion. The Spirit has nothing to do with that. Instead, unity of the Spirit comes when the church decides to rally around the sword of the Spirit, God's Word, God's truth, God's law. So are your conversations with other brothers and sisters, when you guys are alone, are, they, are you encouraging one another unto godliness, unto obedience to the Scriptures? Or are you encouraging someone to adopt your opinion? Is the law of God informing your love, or is your love forming a new kind of law? So if we want to be assured that our love for this church is biblical love, we have to make sure that it's a lawful love. And a good place to start is in the Ten Commandments. It's the summary of the law. But here's this. We're really, really bad readers of the law. We read it. We'll read a command, and then we'll say, oh, well, it's only for that specific time, for those specific people. Like, we'll hear, we'll, we'll read the fifth commandment and say, well, he just says, honor thy father and mother. It doesn't mean anything else. And maybe that just means external uh, obedience. But when Jesus interpreted the law, Jesus saw that there was fuller meaning to the law. 
And our Reformed Baptists and Presbyterian ancestors were really good at this sort of thing. They read the law really well. And I just want to read for you guys a couple of questions and answers from uh, the Baptist Catechism uh, of the 17th century. I know it sounds archaic, but they did a really good job. So, question 76. This is uh, on the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment. What is the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment is thou shall not commit adultery. Next question. What is required in the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment requires that we preserve our own and our neighbor's purity in heart, speech, and behavior. Next question. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? Answer. The seventh commandment forbids all impure thoughts, words, and actions. So on the surface, the seventh commandment just just forbids something. You should not commit adultery. But the Reformed, they heard more. Not only did they hear, all right, don't commit adultery, don't have impure thoughts, but they also heard, preserve your own and your neighbor's purity in heart, speech, and behavior. So when we're contemplating our love for a fellow member of this church, we'd be wise uh, to read God's law, not only in its restrictive sense, keeping me from doing certain things, but also in its exhortative sense. This is what you ought to do. So love for our brother isn't just not doing lawful things, but it is also, and maybe even more so, performing lawful things towards our brother and sister. All right, well, that's a lot of law. And you might be saying, hold up. You're missing a part in the verse on the bottom. What about the end? Doesn't it say, and his commandments are not burdensome? That sounds very burdensome, what you're talking about. And I'll be honest with you, Ronnie. Most of the commandments that I already know are burdensome burdensome enough already. I hear that. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So don't feel discouraged. I think John was with you on that. Because why else does he tell someone that, that the commandments are burdensome? Unless someone was prone to think and feel that the commandments were burdensome. Right? Someone who's picking up a feather, right? You don't say that, oh, hey, be careful. That's light as a feather. You don't do that. <laughs> why? Because they already know it's a feather. Thank you. But... So that didn't happen with John and his readers. So we can, we can be encouraged that John sees uh, our difficulty with the commandments of God. He acknowledges it. But even in his acknowledgement of our weakness, he nonetheless tells us God's commandments are not burdensome. That's true. It's an objective fact. God's commandments are not burdensome. So why are we so often tempted to think that they are? And in order to answer that question, I think we have to ask this question first. What does a person do to make them not feel burdensome? Because if we, if we answer that, if we know what it takes to make this, his commandments not feel burdensome, to feel light and easy, I think we can then acknowledge, okay, what are we lacking when we feel the opposite? When we feel that they are, what are we lacking there? I think that answer is given to us by John in verses 4 through 5. I'm going to, let's read those together. Verse 3 first, he says, And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that it has overcome the world. 
our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Did you catch it? Why are God's commandments not burdensome? Because everyone who has been born of God has overcome the world. And you've overcome the world by your faith. So, God's church has overcome the world by faith. It's one of those first and second statements again. It's like, all right, how are those things connected? Why, why are they not burdensome? How do you make them feel light and easy? Well, he's going back to the beginning, right? When you believe in Jesus' atoning work on the cross, the world dies to you and you die to it. You have been made new in Christ. You are a new creation. And so that means, like we already said, you have, you have new loves, you have new affections, you have new ambitions. But also, you have a distaste. You have a hatred for the things that you used to love. All because you believed and believe now in the gospel. I think this could be equated to the promise of Jeremiah in the New Covenant where he promises us that he's going to write his law upon our hearts. He's going to inscribe the law upon our hearts so deeply that we begin to to love our God and long to love him through obedience to his commandments. So when John says that the commandments are not burdensome for God's people overcome the world by faith, he is saying that God has given his people new affections and loves through Jesus, through faith in him, which makes them hate what the world values, and yet love what God values. For the Christian, the world and its allurements are growing strangely dim because God is growing extremely bright by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so has that happened for you? If you confess Jesus to be Lord, if you, if you trust in him for his saving work, it should have happened in you. Have possessions and and fame and and comfort grown less and less worthy of your affections, of your hope, your trust? Has God won your heart and your devotion through the sacrifice, his loving sacrifice of his son? If so, brothers and sisters, God's commandments will grow less and less burdensome. Jesus' yoke will become ever more easy and his burden will become ever more light. Because it's this, it's faith in God's grace towards you in Christ that lightens the load. Because when we realize that that law that we went through, when we realize that law, when it's given to us in Christ's hands, is a completed law, a law whose, whose demands have been fully met, it no longer has the power to threaten us with its curses. God's law is no longer a burdensome tyrant. It's a loving shepherd to pass a joyful communion with our God. We don't have to be afraid of the law. It doesn't have to be a burden to us. So do you want to grow deeper and deeper in your love for his commandments? Then you need to set your eyes fully upon the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's by grace through faith. In Christ alone. That's how you obey his commandments. That's how they become less and less burdensome. When you look to to Christ and how he has completed those works, those laws for you. It fuels you by grace. You see the love that God has for you. You're a sinner. 
in desperate need of grace. And he has showered it down on you in Christ. Now he says, go and love me like I have loved you. We love because he first loved us. But I want you to realize at at the close of this, that detachment from from worldly pleasures and faith in Jesus is not for the purpose of just getting us a really good personal relationship with God. This is not just to fuel our, our intimate communion with him personally. But remember, the biggest point in John's, John's few verses here is everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So, this is not for private faith, but for public faith. This faith repels the world, clings to Christ, ultimately so that you can love the brethren through obedience to God's commandments. That's the point of all of it. How can you be assured that you have true saving faith? By loving the brethren. Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so it may, may it be said at this church that your greatest distinctive is how you show love for one another. And when it is said of you that you are loving the brethren, be encouraged, for God is at work in you. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for exhorting us to love the brethren through obedience to your commandments. God, may we look upon Christ and and how he has obeyed those commandments for us. May your love shown to us through sending your Son so that we may be forgiven of our sins compel us to love the body that we have covenanted with. It's so ordinary. There's no glamour in it. Oh, but would you assure us inwardly of your love for us when we do these ordinary acts? May you satisfy our hearts when we love ordinary brothers and sisters in Christ. Be with us today, we pray, through Christ and by your Spirit. Amen.